calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Realm presents Bookburners, Season 4, Episode 4. Sal knocked on Liam's door and he called for her to come in. I'm heading up to Matress's investigation, he said without preamble. Can I count on you? He blinked at her. You? What's wrong with Manchu? Sal swallowed her irritation. I know what I'm doing, Liam. This is my specialty. Yeah, I know that, but I'm serious. What's wrong with him? He looks like his best friend died, not Asante's. Sal shrugged. He's definitely acting weird. I think the loss of the Vatican's support is hitting him. Liam nodded slowly. He has depended on the church and God his whole life, almost. He's lost one of his two pillars. We need to watch him. Sure, you keep an eye on him, but can I count on you when I need computer work? He snorted. Yeah, mean, while I keep doing the job I've done for this group for years. Considering we're not Team 3 anymore, I feel it's important to ask, yeah, Sal said. You have my sword, he said, flourishing an imaginary blade. She rolled her eyes. Great, thanks. I really hope the matress left me a sword. How sweet would that be? He swung his imaginary sword again. Anna, but you have Grace's axe, too, if you ask. He called after her as she left. And Asante's bow. Grace was reading in an easy chair in the trigonometry classroom. She answered Sal before she could finish the question. Of course you have my support, she said, looking back to her book as if it was no big deal. Why do you even need to ask? She turned the next page of the left hand of darkness. Sal tried to explain the same thing she had to Liam, but Grace waved her off. Arturo is floundering. He needs to follow for the moment, not lead. Why don't you tell him that? She finally looked up. He didn't ask. Sal made an exasperated noise. Grace smiled at her and pointed at her bed, which was made of two cots pushed together. 
Now go get some rest before you fall over, or I'm rescinding my offer of help. Sal climbed into Grace's bed, her body feeling made of lead. She would talk to Asante in the morning. Grace turned out the light, but her candles still burned in the corner of the room. Would you really take back your offer? Sal asked as she felt the bed shift. Of course not, Grace said into her ear, her arm going around Sal. Are you just saying that because I actually got in bed? Grace laughed, but Sal was asleep in the moment between the laugh and the answer, and she never heard whatever Grace said after. Four. Asante had fallen asleep on her couch with the lights on, and woke up in disorientation when Manchu sat down on her couch near her feet. She looked around blearily. Maturo, what time is it? Four in the morning he said. What can't wait till the sun comes up? I need you, Asante. I need you now more than ever. Things are falling apart. I don't know where I can go. She sighed and sat up. You have me. You always have. He raised an eyebrow. All right, we haven't been very loyal to each other in the recent past, but I think now necessity is forcing us to back each other up, if not loyalty and trust. I can't trust you, he said. She sputtered and tried to interrupt, but he held up his hand. I can't trust you if you continue using magic. She bristled. You want to shackle me to dead texts, just like the Vatican did. There's no shackling, Asante. But Sal got injured. You could have killed her. You were too emotional and you lashed out without even knowing who you were attacking. We have to make sure that doesn't happen again. First Grace, now you. Why didn't you all just get together and arrange an intervention? She snapped. Perhaps you could instead think that those who love you are concerned about you. You can harm those around you or you could harm yourself. Look at what happened to Barry or any number of people we've seen over the years. Asante sat in silence. He waited patiently, not prodding her. She finally breathed in through her nose, long and slow, and sided out her mouth. Her shoulders relaxed, and she sat back on the couch. I will need something from you, if we're talking about trust right now. Yes, I'm part of the team for real. I am with you in the field. Any trip you go on, I'm there. I will not be jailed to a library, whether it's the Vatican's archives or the children's library here, again. If you're ever associated with the church again, I will not follow you unless you can guarantee the same. He nodded slowly. That's fair, as long as you follow my request. I'm not done, she said. He motioned for her to continue. You keep me informed of everything. You don't hide things from me, especially anything about the maitress. Her, Perry, Aaron, Hannah, I need to know it all. We suffer when we hide things from each other, Arturo. Can you promise me the same? He said, done, she said. I suppose you're relieved to be free of the church, he said, a tone of bitterness in his voice. I just promised not to lie to you, she said with a ghost of a smile. So yes, I am relieved. I miss my archive, but it was a stagnant cell, and freedom is very sweet. She looked around the library. Of course, freedom means a primary school in a city destroyed by magic. And the reading material isn't as challenging, but we take what we can get. Manchu chuckled a bit, but sobered when she continued. 
What about you? How are you coping? Surely leaving the bureaucracy is a relief. Like it or not, bureaucracy is the byproduct of an orderly institution, he said. It wasn't always fun, but I understood the necessity. That's lost to me now. And the rest of it? I guess you missed that, too. Must you ask, Asante? Fair enough. I can't pretend to miss the church the way you do, but I do understand the loss of something sacred. Tears closed up her throat again, and she shuddered. He put his arm around her. I'm so sorry, Asante. We'll find out what caused this, who's helping him. And they will burn, she added mentally, letting go of the tears and the safety of his embrace. As excited as Liam was about getting a magic heirloom from the maitress, please let it be a sword. He wasn't keen on the idea of traveling again. It was therefore with mixed emotions that he witnessed the rather impressive display of magic Asante performed the next morning. Although she was quick to explain to them that she hadn't really done anything, just read aloud the invitation to visit the maitress's vault. After she had said the words, the air crackled in front of her and a golden tear appeared, its edges ragged. She reached out without fear and pulled aside the edges to reveal what looked like a basement. I thought we'd be flying, Liam said. This is faster, Asante said. Also, it's easier for her to hide the location if you can only visit via invitation. Sal leaned over and peered inside the tear. It looks like the stock room of a department store. She paused. A shitty department store. She was right. Fluorescent lighting cast a harsh, morale-sapping glare over shelves that lined every vertical space. Rows and rows of items crowded the shelves. Liam thought he spied a tall Hoover box. He didn't want the magic Hoover. Let's go, Asante said. Wait a moment, we need to talk about this, Manchu said, holding her by the shoulder. She glared at him. Arturo, we only have one invite for the five of us. The lawyer made that very clear. Should I go without you? He set his jaw and lifted his hand off her shoulder. We could just not go. We're all going, Sal said, stepping beside Asante. There will very likely be clues here. We need to see what she wanted us to have. Everyone stared at her, but Manchu didn't make another argument. Sal and Asante stepped through the portal together without hesitation. After a moment, Liam followed. Grace and Manchu brought up the rear. Manchu was slightly ahead, Grace covering his back, as usual. Liam expected it to be crackly or hot as he passed through. He'd experienced enough magic to recognize its side effects. But this terror in space was much more impressive looking than it was painful. He had a moment's disorientation when one foot was in the primary school and one was in the storage room of the department store, and then he stepped out. Why was the maitress in a multiple color coffee makers? Liam asked, looking at a shelf of kitchen appliances. I know she had a domestic side, but I didn't know she was a hoarder. This is a veil, Asante explained patiently. She took out the invitation and turned it to the back. She read the words there aloud, more Latin, Liam guessed, but nothing he'd heard in church, and the air shimmered around them. It got much darker and a musty smell hit his nostrils. The brightly colored appliances and stacks of towels disappeared, and a much more interesting gathering of items appeared, lit by soft gas lighting coming from the wall.
A table in front of them held neat stacks of extinguished candles beside brass candle holders with curved handles. In front of it all stood a tall blue candle in a crystal candlestick and a small tented white card. The card said, take one, in elaborate script. Now we're talking, Liam said, darting forward. Slow down, you fool, Asante said, snagging his sleeve. You don't know what anything is. This is a candle, isn't it? He asked, picking one up. He put it into one of the wax-covered candle holders and lit it from the main candle. Immediately, something began pulling him down the third aisle to the right. This is wicked. There's something for me down that way. As he followed the pull, the candle's flame flickered and became a light shade of blue. It darkened as he walked, and the pull got stronger. The shelves around him held no limit of mysterious objects. He saw small statues of gold and crystal, a rusty abacus, a jar of swirling fog, and a carousel that could fit into the palm of his hand. He stopped at this one and held the candle to it, trying to appreciate the fine details of the tiny horses. But the closer the flame got to the carousel, the darker the flame got until it was casting darkness instead of light, and he could no longer see anything on the shelf. I was just looking, he muttered to the candle. Can't a bloke look? When he backed away from the forbidden shelves, the candle flared its blue flame again, and he followed the pull around another corner. He looked at the aisle in front of him and stopped short. Uh-oh. Something made of black glass had shattered in the middle of the floor, leaving debris and a diaphanous substance strewn around. Something had scattered several items all over the floor in its furious birth from its glass prison. Some items, like a set of brass scales, looked dented or damaged. Others looked normal. Of course, there was no way of knowing if they'd been dented to begin with, he realized. Hey, team, something got out, he yelled. Watch out for... He peered closer at the floor. Something, I, I don't know, a beastie of some sort. Not very descriptive, Menchu said from the next aisle over. Well, I don't know, I only see where it's been, not where it is now. But something broke free of a glass case and wreaked havoc on the stuff on these shelves. He stopped. He had spotted something. Liam forgot about Menchu and whatever had broken the glass. Sitting beyond the mess on the second shelf from the floor was a plain longsword, its blade burned black. That's what I'm talking about, he shouted and jumped over the debris to get the sword. But the closer he got, the more the pull lessened and the flame began to dim again. After a few steps, he had to admit that every step toward the sword was a step away from the pull of the candle. He reached for the sword regardless, but a hand caught his wrist. I don't think you should be picking up anything that's not yours, Sal said. The vault has protections, remember? How do you know it's not mine? He asked, ignoring his own blackened candle. She held up her own lit candle, which glowed bright blue. Because it's mine. Shit, he said and watched her pick it up. She stood for a moment, waiting to see if the sword came to life to recognize its mistress. Nothing happened. She wasn't made queen of the land, and the blade didn't glow magnificently. No flame, either. You sure you're doing it right? He asked. How many ways can you pick up a sword? She asked, irritation coloring her voice. He shrugged. Must be a dud, he said, but turned to hide his own disappointment. Well, the lawyer didn't say we should expect the stuff to be magical, just because the maitress was a magical being, she reminded him. He didn't care. A plain sword was better than no sword at all. His candle flickered and pulled again, and he trudged back around the glass debris and crouched down. 
His prize was on the bottom shelf, one of the few things that hadn't been knocked off by the escape of the beastie. Oh, oh no, he said, looking at the item glowing in the blue light. This was very obviously for him. God damn it. A tarnished, percolating coffee pot from the 1950s sat on one side, and an LP of a Beatles album that he was pretty sure didn't exist in the non-magical world sat on the other. Between them was a small plant in a little planter. The dirt was slightly damp, as if it had been watered this morning. The planter was a simple brown terracotta pot, darkened from the moisture in the dirt. He reached out and wrapped his hand around the pot, and it thrummed under his hand, the way the sword was supposed to have done. Damn it, he whispered. The plant itself looked carnivorous, with a mouth-like pod nestled among purple, spiky leaves. Huh, that looks like a cutting from that plant that ate you that time, Sal said, looking over his shoulder. Is that what she left you? Liam hunched his head. Yeah, that's rough, she said. She raised her voice for the others and said, don't expect too much. Liam and I essentially got gag gifts. I'm not taking this, he said, putting it back. Oh, you have to take it, said a voice, and he jumped. The lawyer, Dalen, was behind him with her briefcase. Once you touch the item bequeathed to you, you're bound to remove it from the vault. Well, I'm tossing it as soon as I get home. She shrugged. That's your call, but you can't leave it here. What would happen if I did? She smiled. I don't know. Why don't you find out? Liam swore under his breath and turned away from her. Never mind. He looked at Sal's sword, still burned black. Why did you say yours was a gag gift? She shrugged. It's clearly not magical. If it was blessed before, it's been drained. She pointed to the black blade. I got a dangerous hunk of steel. This day just keeps getting better and better, he said. He looked down at the plant and sighed. Come on, Bronach. Let's go wait for everyone else to keep shopping. Sal looked sideways at him. Bronach? Man, sorrowful. Like how I feel getting a bloody plant when you get a sword. You should give it the middle name of Envy, then, Sal said. Bronach Envy has a nice ring, don't you think? He glared at her. He was about to give her what he was sure would have been a scathing reply, but thought he felt the plant shift in his hand. Uh, hold off, can someone... He never got to finish his comment because across the vault, someone was screaming. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. 
To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com slash bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Five. Grace's gift had been a glass vial of water. She found it lying on a shelf of corked vials, some full of red liquid, some blue, one of them a golden viscous goo, and some apparently empty. Her own had, by viscosity and lack of color, been only water. She carefully chose it out of the haphazard jumble of chemistry set castoffs, pocketed it, and turned to see what the others were doing. Not needing it anymore, she blew out the candle, which always felt like an odd thing to do, probably a lot like someone normal poking numbed skin with a pin and expecting pain but receiving none. The vial felt heavy in her pocket. She didn't care to receive anything from the maitress, but didn't care to set off any alarms by not accepting the gift either. Just get it, take it home, and throw it away. Terse voices drifted down the next aisle over. She jogged silently toward them and peeked through some shelves to see two people. A short white woman stood there furiously clutching her forearm as a similarly featured man in a brown overcoat laughed at her. Her white blouse was ripped and blood ran over her hand and dripped onto the floor where it soaked into the wood. So are we going to try my way now? The man said. You'll be lucky if that monster you released attacks anyone else. I think it slipped into the ceiling. It's probably going to set up house up there and not bother anyone again. You should have freed it more effectively. You're going to have to have that looked at. Spiders of animus. The woman was clearly his sister, possibly a twin. She frowned at him, her dimples disappearing. He didn't say it would be like this. He said it would be easy. If it were easy, then why didn't he do it himself? The man asked, fingering a dusty wine bottle on a shelf. I wonder what's in here. Just carry out your plan, big shot, and let's get out of here, she said. This really hurts. I'll take as much time as necessary. This has to be done correctly. You do realize what he's paying us, right? Grace took a step back. She needed to get the others, but she also needed to see what these two were up to. Were they targeting the team, or were they simply grave robbing the maitress? She couldn't care less if someone was looting the old woman's tomb. There had been no love lost on Grace's part, since she had been a stone statue in the woman's fountain. Even before then. But if these people posed a threat to her group, then she should intervene. She paused as the memory of the fountain came back to her. Oh, 
So that was where the water in her pocket came from. That damned fountain that had ensnared her until Sal and Asante had convinced the maitress to free her. Revulsion crawled over her skin, but she focused on the siblings in the next aisle. It was a fast spell, faster than she had ever seen Asante perform. The man raised his hands and began to speak. After the first word, the floor underneath the woman became uneven, small waves forming as if the wood had turned to water. She stumbled and then fell to her knees. The man spoke a second word that made Grace's teeth hurt, and a gap opened between waves, but they weren't waves, Jesus, their lips, and the woman tumbled halfway in. She let go of her injured arm and scrabbled at the floor, searching for something to grab. The man spoke a third word, and the mouth closed with a clap, stopping the woman's shrieks abruptly. She fell back like a rag doll, her face still contorted with pain and fear. A tongue snaked out of the lips, wrapped around her, and pulled her in. He's making sure I get the inheritance that was supposed to go to the firstborn, the man said as if continuing their conversation, which by an accident of chance turned out to be you by a mere two minutes. After swallowing, the mouth in the floor appeared again, working wordlessly as if trying to speak through plastic wrap. The man took a step back. Not yet he said. Soon, be patient, and you'll feed again quite well. Very soon, in fact. He smiled at the floor, where there remained no sign of his twin. He pulled the bottle of wine off the shelf and slipped it into his overcoat pocket. Shame to waste it, he said, considering the air has been eaten. The vault shuddered slightly, but showed no other security mechanism as the man opened a golden tear and stepped through. In the floor, the mouth settled back into the wood grain. Grace burned two minutes in her haste to find Sal and Manchu, and then turned on the speed again when Asante gave a strangled yell. Asante had walked through the vault, her fingers trailing over the items, thinking of her old friend. Emotions flowed, grief, guilt, regret, anger. All the feelings one has when a loved one dies. She didn't follow her candle at first. She wanted the vault to give her one last feeling of being completely with the maitresse. Her wanderings took her to Arturo, gingerly opening a flat, plain white box. He pulled out a wooden cross. It wasn't a crucifix, nor did it have the ornate designs of a Celtic cross or any of the tacky crap they had in the Vatican. This one was simply a cross, short bar across a longer bar. It hung on a leather cord. Manchu smiled slightly and put it back into the box, which he slipped into his pocket. Asante left him to his private moment and wandered on. Someone started screaming, but Asante didn't recognize the voice. Her compassion for strangers misbehaving in a sacred space was at an all-time low, and she stayed put. She came across Sal and Liam arguing, or more accurately, Liam pouting while Sal needled him. Children, she thought disgusted. Unfortunately, her candle was drawing her directly to the mess in the center of the aisle they had just vacated. What did this used to be? She asked. She bent and pulled some of the diaphanous substance off a broken piece of glass. It was hers, no question there, but what was it? What had it been? An envelope lay under the debris. It had her name on it, but it was empty. She spotted a damp, chewed piece of paper ahead of her and bent to get it. Her present arrived then, coming in the form of eight legs descending onto her head. 
fangs sank into the back of her neck. What's going on? Sal yelled as Grace ran toward her and then veered away. Only then did Sal realize Asante was shouting. She and Liam followed Grace, meeting Menchu along the way. Someone is setting traps in the vault, and I think Asante found the first one, Grace said as Asante's shouting stopped. Ahead of them, she dangled from the ceiling, a silky thread holding her entire weight. She appeared unconscious as a spider the size of a corgi danced around her, spinning a cocoon. Get her down from there, Menchu shouted. She'll fall, Liam said. Grace glowered at him. Yes, she will, and we'll catch her, moron. He looked annoyed, but wouldn't meet her eyes. Quickly, Grace, Menchu cried. Above them, the spider worked with horrific speed, encasing their archivist. She was almost completely enshrouded now. Sal realized she was still holding the blackened sword. She handed it to Grace, hilt first. Throw it. The pain on the back of her neck was hot an instant, and then it was gone. Asante found herself walking in a dark place. It wasn't a frightening dark, but the dark of a night when you would sneak out of the house to spend time with a lover. It was a friendly dark. Old friend, I'm sorry you have to hear this, the matress said. She appeared a moment later in front of Asante. Are you real? She asked, clenching her fists against the swell of emotion. As real as your memory of me. If you're seeing this, I assume I'm dead. Yes, Asante said. This is something I wanted to give to you when I was alive, but you were too busy working with the Vatican to accept it properly. I had hoped that after you left them, you could accept it, but I wasn't sure. And now it's too late, so you have to take it. It's the law of the vault. You gave me death by giant spider? Asante asked. The matress looked sad. Nothing powerful is ever easy, Asante. If I were to put great magical knowledge into a little flower, it would grow into a massive carnivorous plant. If I locked it in a kitten, you'd get a lioness. This is magic that is yours by right. You can learn it, you can control it, you can master it. It's just not very fun to take in, that's all. So I'm not dying. Her old friend smiled. I was inscrutable and sometimes cruel to my enemies. But when did I ever harm you? Asante could think of a few times, actually, but this was old smoke from a dead fire lingering in a chimney. And she didn't think an argument with a memory projection would lead to a satisfying end. So what do I do? Rest, the venom will do its work. The spider will free you when it's done. Her forehead creased. Did you not read the card I left? No, it looked like someone had broken the spider's cage and destroyed everything. So you really did think a spider was attacking you? I'm so sorry, the matress said with uncharacteristic regret. It's all right, I understand now, Asante reassured her. And thank you for my gift. The matress looked sad. You don't understand, my dear. If you thought you were being attacked by a real monster, then your friends did too. It's not comforting to watch these creatures imbue their knowledge. It's very likely that she disappeared. Masanti became instantly aware of her body, the pain in her neck, the tight cocoon, and the inability to breathe. She thrashed and pitched and then fell. Nice throw, 
Liam whooped as Grace impaled the spider on the tip of Sal's sword. It squealed and clattered to the floor, oozing green and purple around the blade. Asante began to move in her cocoon, and Menchu shouted to get her down. Sal grabbed the sword, shook the spider off with disgust, and then handed it to Grace again. Grace threw it again, neatly severing the strand that held Asante's cocoon. Asante fell, and Grace positioned herself to catch her. Asante landed in her arms, thrashing, and Grace stumbled backward and then down with Asante on top of her. She rolled out from under the cocoon, and then Manchu was there, carefully slicing through the silk with a small knife. Once her face was free, Asante took in a deep breath, focused on his face, and spat in it. Arturo, damn you! Back at the school, Asante stalked to the girls' locker room to shower the rest of the spider web and venom off her face. Grace had wanted to dress the wounds on her neck, but Asante wouldn't allow anyone to touch her. They were large wounds, the width of pencils and deep. But she didn't bleed. They only oozed purple ichor mixed with strands of blood. They should have bled a lot more. While still in the vault, the baffled team had been able to get Asante to explain at least a little bit about why she was so royally pissed, but then she opened the portal and they were home. How the hell were we supposed to know that the spider was a... Liam searched for the right words. Magic encyclopedia injection. We did what we always do. I don't see how that makes us the bad guys here. The bad guys were those people who set the damn thing loose in the first place. If she had received the gift as intended, then she would have known what was going on, and so would we, Menchu said thoughtfully. Sal was cleaning her blade with oil. She had managed to get all the spider guts and webbing off it, but the blade was still black. What did you say those twins said, Grace? They were clearly there on behalf of someone else. It sounded as if the woman had wanted to sabotage the spider's container and got a bite for her troubles, a real bite, not the knowledge kind of bite that Asante got. And her brother sacrificed her to the vault to set a different kind of trap. Less immediately dangerous, I suppose. Less dangerous for him, Liam amended. They were hired to be there, but I think they were heirs too. The guy took his sister's inheritance, an old bottle, when she was dead. Norse, Sal said quietly. He would know Asante was an heir. He found some unscrupulous heirs and hired them to set traps for us. The mouth in the floor had still been opening and closing, seeking out another meal. Grace had pointed it out to them, told them to stay back, and then grabbed the lips closed with one hand and punched the hell out of it with the other. It had squirmed and moaned and then disappeared, fading back into the floor. Punching, the easiest way to solve problems, in her opinion. But the team had been tricked into destroying Asante's gift. She gave the team the basic information on what the spider had been and then clammed up. But Menchu had pulled her aside and had a low conversation with her. She grudgingly nodded and he let her go, a conflict clouding his face. Grace had a bad feeling about what that meant. Norse knows we're onto him, Sal said. Liam, try to figure out who those wonder twins are. See if you can find any info on twins who traveled in magical circles. There won't be an obit yet, but there might be rumors. Find out if they have allies or connections. Liam nodded. Got it. I'm going to talk to Asante, Menchu said. Good work, everyone. Then he bit his lips as if he regretted speaking and exited the room. Do you think she got any of that knowledge she mentioned? Grace asked as she and Sal walked slowly back to the trigonometry room. She'll tell us when she cools down, Sal said. In the meantime, what did the matress leave you?
bottle of water, Grace said. I haven't touched it since we got back. Probably safe, Sal said, nodding. I don't think I'll be using that sword much. Feels too tainted. Liam would be happy to take it off your hands, Grace said. Take what? He asked, coming out of the calculus room where he slept. My sword, Sal said, pointing to her blanket-wrapped parcel. Yeah, would have been nice, but hey, I may have news on the twins. There's a family that's all flashy with new magic, and they've been bragging about their powerful twins, Rocky and Minerva Peterson. They're eager to get influence wherever they can and have been connected to a lot of groups, usually renting themselves out as toadies and hired magical muscle. They're twin mercenaries. He grinned, a mean glint to his eyes. I hacked into some private discussions on them. There are some muckety-mucks who focus their power through family ties, so good old Rocky just bit his nose off despite his face, Sal said. With his sister gone, he won't be as strong. I guess it's good to know we won't have to worry about them anymore. How many powerful people were they connected to? Grace asked. Lots. Norse, uh, some people in America, Poland, Sweden, Iceland. I recognize several names. He handed Sal a piece of paper. At least we got a lead, if flimsy. Sal said, studying it. It's something. Good work, boss, Liam said, grinning. Sal smiled weakly and followed Grace inside. Her head still throbbed with the poem that had hit it, and she wanted to sleep for a week. Asante entered the library, annoyed to find Arturo there. You know it's not our fault, he said. Someone sabotaged your gift before we even got there. I know, she said. She put the book she had been carrying down on the desk and joined him on the couch. But I was so close. What did she leave you? I need the details, Asante. Asante was quiet. We agreed. No secrets, no lies, he prompted. She sighed and closed her eyes. She left me knowledge, Arturo. She left me magic. He was silent for a moment. She didn't open her eyes to see his expression. Then he said, did you retain any of it? Asante opened her eyes and glanced at the book. It was black leather with silver etchings depicting a large tree with a vine-like border around the edges. The others told her she had been clutching it when she had emerged from the cocoon. Yes, she said. I think I know a way to open doors. Not literal locks, but doors from here. She pointed to the room they were in, to there. She waved her hand vaguely, indicating the rest of the world. Teleportation? He asked, frowning. That's not secret knowledge. Many people know how to do that, as I understand it. No, she said slowly. I don't think it's a door to this world. I think it's a door from here to... She paused, thinking wherever the demons and any magical beings come from. Manchu's face grew somber. I very much hope you never open a door like that. From what I understand, it's highly dangerous, even when you have all the information, which I don't, she admitted. I won't be trying it anytime soon. Please tell me you won't be trying it at all. She thought about their pledge to stay honest with each other. She thought about the venom still burning in her neck and the secrets it was still releasing inside her. She met his eyes. I can't do that. You want my honesty, I'm giving it to you. 
If a situation arises where this knowledge is all that stands between us and the darkness, I'm using it. His face darkened in anger, and he opened his mouth to say something, but thought better of it. Then he deflated a bit and frowned, his eyes downcast. So be it, he said and got up. She watched him go in silence, wanting to call him back, but knowing there was nothing for them to say. He can't give me orders anymore. The thought hit her like a train. Arturo wasn't in charge, and he knew it. Sal was their leader now. He could advise and would definitely give his opinions on things, but he couldn't tell her what to do. Simultaneously, she felt elated at the freedom for herself and sorrow for her friend, who was hurting because of what he had lost. But the freedom... The elation won out, and Asante reached for the silver-etched book with new energy. As the venom continued to seep into her system, more and more words appeared upon the page in front of her. Portals. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts. Spotify or at realm.fm.